You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Proteum Machining. And this week, I am very happy to be joined by Ledger McFadden. Welcome, Ledger. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So for anybody who doesn't know who you are, what you do, give us all the details. Yes, yeah, so I'm Ledger. I'm the owner of LHM Engineering. So LHM Engineering is a one-man, kind of one-machine, five-axis contract manufacturing shop in the Boston, Massachusetts area. We're doing a lot of work surrounding the kind of medical, medical laboratory equipment, some robotics, and a tiny bit of semiconductor work here. So most of our work is actually probably 70% stainless and then some some specialty plastics, aluminum, and a little bit of kind of the tougher materials as well. Most of our parts are in the size of a, like a Bic lighter in size up to about a tissue box. We can do some bigger parts, but that seems to be most of the work that comes in for us. Uh, and we also do a small amount of contract programming, engineering work, and product development for some of our customers. And then as kind of a side project earlier this year, we launched our own product under a different brand, which I'm a co-founder with. So LHM Engineering's just me, but this other brand, Tar Equipment, I started with a long-term friend and we brought a, a water bottle accessory to market. So the product's called a cap strap and it screws on, it has a notch to screw through the threads of an algae and then sit underneath the cap. Um, and it gives us a secure connection point for rock climbing and things like that. Because it's well known that the plastic straps that come with those algae, a lot of people climb with them and then they can break off and water can, the bottles can fall on people's heads from below and stuff like that. So really brought that to market. We were both looking to see what it was like to bring a product to market. And we thought of this idea and it was a low barrier to entry and something we were excited about. And it's been a really cool learning opportunity, learning about kind of meta ads, Shopify store, and how to market uh, you know, a cheaper sub $20 product, which is very different than marketing for a high-end contract manufacturing business. Totally. Well, we've got some questions about that. But first, let's get into your backstory. How did you get to start your own five-axis shop? You know, Where did your manufacturing journey start? Yeah, so I guess to go back to the beginning, uh, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts on the North Shore in a suburb. And early high school, I think, was my first time doing anything kind of remotely engineering related. And actually, I was really into graphic design, kind of freshman and sophomore year of high school. And that was my first experience really kind of getting good at working with software. And if anyone's used a program like Illustrator or Photoshop, I feel like there's a lot of carryover to the experience working with CAD or CAM software to really kind of learn what you want and to become kind of fluid working with those softwares and get over the hump of them being clunky. I really enjoyed that experience. And I'm glad looking back now with some of these AI tools coming out and things that I'm not a graphic designer, that I didn't go that route. And it'll be really interesting to see how these AI tools start affecting our industry with CAM programming and things like that. But from there, kind of middle of high school, junior, kind of junior year, I got kind of involved in woodworking projects. And that really spurred from kind of finding people online. I watched a lot of, uh, if you've seen like Jimmy Duresta's videos, and got into also older kind of woodworking equipment restoration. I watched a lot of Keith Rucker who buys kind of old, a lot of World War II air equipment and then restores it. So I was driving all over the place, buying old like Delta Unisaws and uh, drill presses, bandsaws, all like older World War II air equipment from the 40s and kind of taking it apart, repainting it. And I probably spent more time messing with the equipment than actually making anything out of wood. But Like those um, ones with... 
kind of like Art Deco cast iron bases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One um, of my old neighbors at my shop, he like he was a driller, but he started doing that in his spare time. And so, yeah, he had like a bandsaw and radial arm saw and a drill press and like just kept acquiring every possible one with the same Art Deco base and re- redoing them. It was pretty cool. Yeah, so there's definitely kind of a big community of people restoring that. And you, there's all these there's aftermarket companies selling little the wear components and things like that. So there's still in some ways support for these saws that are uh, like 70, 80 years old or whatever. So that's pretty cool. And at that same time, I got involved with FRC. So I'm sure a lot of people listening are familiar with FRC, First Robotics Competition. It's a big comp- high school robotics competition. I think there's many thousands of active teams around the country. You build a, a, it's kind of a car style robot that's, it's about, I think it's about three feet by three feet and maybe a hundred pounds. I, I can't remember exactly, but so I got involved in that and each year they have a different competition with a set of rules. So I think something to note about FRC is that the team's resources are very, like very widely. So there are some super well-funded teams that work out of NASA facilities with NASA engineers as their mentors and hundreds of thousands of dollars in budget. And then there are these tiny teams that just have a couple members working uh, with some local money they raised at like Lemonade Stand. And we were definitely, I went to a small high school with a very small team and the team had kind of never really achieved much. We never really made it past the local competitions. They're kind of local and then I think state and then the world competition. And so my first year got super involved in that and we did a little better, but not significantly. Then the next year I got really involved and we kind of made some changes um, to our approach and got some sponsors involved. I found this awesome local guy who had done FRC when he was in high school and he was willing to donate water jetting time so we could get a full water jetted kind of chassis. And that was my first experience. And also we had a family friend who ran a machine shop and had a, he had a cool DMG linear vertical machine with the older Heidenheim control. And so those were my first experiences working with kind of professional fabricators and, and machinists and, uh, and getting some of that experience. And we ended up being really successful, especially for a really tiny team. For the first time ever, we made it to the Worlds in St. Louis. And then won, I think we won our subdivision and went into the, the finals or semifinals. So it was a really cool experience to kind of see that success pay off and to work with these different vendors. And and that's where I really realized that I wanted to focus on mechanical engineering. And so I ended up going to Georgia Tech for mechanical engineering. And when I got there, I definitely wanted to continue that experience. I had FRC type experience. And the I think the best ways to do that in college is one of the car racing teams. So the two, there's a bunch of them, but Two of the big ones are Formula SAE, which is kind of a Formula One style track racing car. Then there's Baja SAE, which is kind of an off-road, um, off-road, like four-wheeler go-kart type of thing. And so I joined both those teams when I got to Georgia Tech. And oh, with, the, <laughs> with the intention of only doing one, but I wanted to feel out where, where the most opportunity was. And the Formula team at Georgia Tech is a little more established than the Baja team and definitely had like a a freshman track where you organize bolts for the first six months and then maybe like you help out assemble something in the second six months. It was a really kind of slow process to get really involved. And the Baja team had a little bit more opportunity because they had 
smaller team. They needed people to really step up. And so I kind of gravitated towards that and ended up kind of choosing to do the Baja instead of the formula. And I think they're both awesome competitions. It's just kind of based team by team, school by school, what makes the most sense if people are looking to get involved in one of those. And so basically the competitions for those are in the springtime. And so a lot of the design work is done in the fall and then kind of winter and spring is when most of the components are made for the car. Um, And that's where, so basically we had two older members on the team that knew how to use the CNC machining equipment and they were going on study abroad in the spring. So they were kind of leaving the team without anyone to make any of the components. And there's a lot of CNC components on these cars. Uh, And so I was like, really into this. I knew for whatever reason that I wanted to get into this manufacturing stuff. I just thought it was so cool. So I kind of stepped up and they gave me a few months before they left for winter break. We made a few of the components. I kind of got the very glimpse of how to use the machine and started using Fusion 360 a little bit, but really did not know what I was doing. And then the next semester, I was just kind of off on my own to make these relatively complex parts with no experience and no one to help me. And so for equipment, so at Georgia Tech, we have a shared space between all the project teams. So Formula, Baja, Solar, a few other teams, a robotics team. And we share kind of a machine shop area. So we had a Haas VF2, a Haas Mini Mill, and then one of those ProtoTrack tool room lays, this kind of programmable point to point. You can also load some G-code programs on them. And then we had kind of a knockoff Bridgeport. It was a Chevrolet brand that had a ProtoTrack conversational control as well, as well as some kind of manual lathes and things of that nature. So really spent most of the time on that VF2, learning Fusion, really self-teaching myself a lot of stuff from the great content that's out online. Uh, Watched a lot of John Saunders videos and things like that. And also got some help from some of the kind of machine shops elsewhere on campus and some of the other members of other teams. And really just kind of started learning trial by fire. And I have some of the parts that I made early on, and I am like, I'm amazed that how bad they are. Um, <laughs> there were definitely Tennessee floor finishes on those parts. Um, I know the feeling for sure. I've like, got I, a, f- a few parts from when I started programming and stuff, and you look back and you're like, how how did they keep me on as an employee after I did shit like this? <laughs> I have this part. It's uh, it's kind of a long reach to get down to the floor, and then there's a like an eighth inch corner radius that blends the wall and the floor. And I didn't know like bullnose end mills existed. I had this part and I remember like spending all this time dialing in this like four foot long quarter inch ball end mill to try and like, like machine this fillet. And then someone told me about these bullnose end mills. And I was like, I cannot believe the difference between here. So I have this part I'm looking at, it's like covered in yeah, it has like the most chattery, like blended fillet you have ever seen because this quarter inch end mill was sticking out like four inches to reach this feature. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, if I had just known, like there's so much, so many better tools for this. Um, so it was, a, it was a long kind of learning process. And I think that's the best way to learn machining if you're really motivated. And because it wasn't a company, you kind of have free reign to, to do what you need. Like these parts never ended up at a customer. And I wasn't like burning company time and money. And I didn't do any, never really crashed machine too badly, but obviously there was risk of that and things. So to really have this opportunity to learn and play. And also 
it to feel really important because there was a team relying on me to make these parts. And it wasn't just I wanted to make this thing for I wasn't making like a napkin holder out of my, for myself or something. These were parts that uh, all these designers had made and were really relying on. So that was where I kind of really cut kind of cut my teeth and learned learned a lot there. And then also at Georgia Tech, I was involved with a pretty cool research group. And so I believe this facility was funded by like Delta and Boeing. And it had, it was, it was, it had some very cool equipment. So it had Kuma Multis, and then it had a uh, Mazak with the five axis, the, I'm facing on the name. It's kind of their, their lower end five axis machine kind of set up like a um, UMC 500 configuration. And then they had that, they had one of those standard. And then they had another one that was serial number two of their additive version. And so it had uh, kind of a side head with a powder canister and a laser. It had the green, uh, the green windows and everything. And they were trying to get that working. So I think Mazak had one and then we had one. And then there was one other one somewhere in the world. And there was, it was graduate research trying to get that working. And then the research I was involved in was developing this new CAM software. And so the, the purpose of this CAM software was to basically, it was designed, in my opinion, by someone who knew a lot about software, but not a lot about machining. Oh, and boy. <laughs> so, so basically, they, they would take a model. So you, you upload like a step file into this CAM software. And it basically turns it into thousands of points like that they called voxels. And so basically, it's like it's like kind of the worst thing you could possibly do. You're like turning your nice model into like a step file or an STL rather, basically thousands of little points. And then it would try and optimize the tool, the tool's path to like plow as many points as it could to optimize material removal. And oh, basically... <laughs> Because it was going from tenth of a point to tenth of a point, it would the code that was spit out was basically in tenths, uh, like every tenth of an inch, there was a new G code line. And we, they just did some testing where they were like, what if we try and rapid this machine 10 inches left to right in the X, but have a point every tenth of an inch? And like, how long will that take versus like just rapiding in one point? And basically it created code that was really unoptimized to run on on any machine. And Mazak had some built-in smoothing that maybe helped a little bit. But the camp software was it was pretty interesting. But it was a cool experience to learn to work on this equipment and then learn I think, yeah, really see the benefits of kind of smoothing and and filtering. And really what these camp softwares that we use are working towards is in some ways the opposite of what this camp software was trying to produce. So it's a really cool experience to work with a really smart group of people on really cool equipment. But it was kind of sad because there was this really high end millions of dollars of equipment kind of just sitting there for uh, research that wasn't too many hours a week. And the coolant was turning green on these machines. And there was oh. lots of lots of opportunities for uh, there was a, a high need for machining equipment on campus, but no one really had access to this equipment. And the Baja and Formula team, they, the Formula team, especially there. Their hubs are really a great part for like a Multis or something like that. They were always trying to get on that machine, but they were the machine was stuck set up for like this voxel based impeller that uh, would take months to machine kind of one poke, <laughs> one poke at a time with a ball end mill. Oh man, that sounds like 
it could be quite frustrating seeing machines like that just sit waiting for that kind of stuff. But especially the, the graduates that were working on that project were super cool people. And I still have some contact with some of them. And that research ended up moving to Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And a lot of those graduates, I was undergrad, kind of paid to work with these graduate students. And a lot of them moved over to Oak Ridge when that research went over there. And now they're doing some pretty cool. The really the important part of that research, which I wasn't too involved in when I was there, was was the additive manufacturing, additive subtractive machines and the, that kind of prototype Mazak machine they had. And now I believe their research is on additive subtractive Akuma 5-axis. So there's definitely were some really cool people. It was a really cool opportunity and my first experience working with, with 5-axis equipment like that. So then around that time, sophomore year of college, is when I realized that I really wanted to focus on manufacturing and a little bit less on mechanical engineering, which is what I was going to school for. And it was definitely a bit frustrating because Georgia Tech is a very like rigorous academic program, really well-respected, but definitely they pride themselves on taking in really smart students. And then they like love to give the speech where like, they're like, everyone that's in this school has like never worked hard in academics. You've always breezed through. And like our goal is to make academics hard for like smart people. And they used to have a speech many years ago, which they got rid of is like the, the on the first day they would, this was like 20, 30 years ago, the president of the school would stand up and say like, look to your left, look to your right. Only one of you will graduate from this program. Cause I think they had a, a 60, 70% dropout rate from mechanical engineering. Holy cow. That's like, that seems like such a bizarre choice as a school to make. Like let's intimidate everybody coming in and make sure that their life is hard. Yeah, so I mean, they they didn't give that speech when I was there, and it was not that high a dropout rate. But it, they definitely did pride themselves on making academics rigorous for people that hadn't considered them rigorous in high school. I think that was the theme of the school, and because of that, you really had to buckle down on your schoolwork, and it left less time for extracurriculars. And for me, extracurriculars were actually what I wanted to do as my career. And so, trying to balance all this time on the Baja team, which could easily be over a full-time job, 40, 50 plus hours a week uh, and juggle some of this research. It was, it almost felt like my education was getting in the way of my education. And so I decided to make, they didn't really have any manufacturing degrees there. And so I decided to make a switch to RIT in New York. And there I switched from ME to uh, MET, which is mechanical engineering technology. And the technology basically means it's a little bit more of a hands-on major a lot more labs, like we had a lot of labs, heat treating metals and then testing how brittle they were, like learning about austenization temperature. It was a lot more hands-on work rather than just the theoretical. And it was still a design degree. They've now built up a pretty cool manufacturing degree, but there was not very many people in it when I switched there. So I went for the MET route. And that ended up being a really good change because not only were the classes more applicable to what I do now, but also kind of afforded me the free time to really buckle down and focus on the manufacturing. And lastly, there were a co-op program. So was able to take semesters off and work for different companies. So let's see here. So yeah, when I, when I got there, I decided to continue with the Baja team just because it was kind of a natural progression. And the RIT Baja or the Georgia Tech Baja team was kind of small, medium sized. The RIT Baja team was pretty huge. Uh, and uh, like more well-established. And I think that's, like I said, because there was just more time 
to focus on this type of stuff and less time needed for academics. And it's also a snowy rural campus way up there in New York. And there basically aren't any distractions. Like Baja is the only thing to do. So I know you talked with uh, Ethan Patain earlier this year. He was the uh, on the formula team. So we kind of had parallel roles, but on different teams and different departments. So he was uh, manufacturing for the formula and I was for the Baja. So I think he's also had pretty similar experience there. And awesome. Yeah, so when I got there, we had a Hardinge GX480 mill, which is, it's kind of like a robo-drill type setup mill. It does have a sidearm, like a double-arm tool changer, but it's kind of robo-drill in size. The cool the chip's just flush to the back and has a kind of a basic fanic control, but it's, it's 40 taper, not 30 taper. And we also had a Hardinge GS51 lathe, which is pretty nice, two-axis lathe, eight-inch chuck, so that kind of size range. And I really had the opportunity to get involved in the lathe side. There was a lot of people running the mill at the time, but only one guy running the lathe. And he was in trying to finish up his master's thesis and just didn't have the time to really focus on the team like he had in previous years. So I was able to jump in there and again, kind of self-taught myself the two-axis turning. I had worked with a lot of manual equipment and that tool room lathe, but never uh, more of a proper CNC lathe. I hadn't had a lot of time on those. And we also, that's when I switched to Mastercam. So the team had a Mastercam sponsorship and decided to make the switch to Mastercam because I thought it was a better choice from a career perspective. A lot of established companies using Mastercam and Fusion's great as well, but kind of just had the, I wanted to scratch the itch of using that software. Um, and so that was a great experience. Got super involved in the team that year and yeah, made, made a ton of parts. Uh, and yeah, kind of really established myself on the team. And the next year I was chosen to be the manufacturing manager of the team. And so the team's probably like 70 people uh, for size, but... That is quite large. Yeah. I would say 20 to 30 super active members when I would say that super active, meaning 30 plus hours a week of commitment. And then a handful, like five or six people that were there like... 60, 70 hours a week. Oh, jeez. I was there. Yeah, I definitely had many like 80 hour plus weeks. Like it was, it was far bigger commitment than my academics. And uh, so, yeah, when I took that leadership role, it was, it was kind of a big deal because there were some big shoes to fill that the previous guy who had graduated had grown up in an aerospace machine shop that his family ran and so had a ton of experience and also worked like 80 hours a week for the team and just, was very experienced machinist. And uh, yeah, there was just a lot to do in that role when I took it on. And then I kind of fell into, I found out the next year is that the rules were changing for Baja and we switched to a four-wheel drive instead of a two-wheel drive car. Uh, and oh, that's that, a big design. Oh, that's a big change. That is a huge design change, but also it probably doubles or triples the scope of the CNC kind of requirements for the team. So the manufacturing team kind of went from a outrageously, a kind of an outrageous role to like an impossible role with that change. And also everything was going to be delayed because the design designers need more time to like, to get those changes out. So that was kind of definitely my, I think my, I had been a, I had been in other leadership positions in the past, like in high school and things like that. But I think this was the first kind of leadership position where I felt a lot of stress to perform. And it was such a great kind of learning opportunity uh, 
basically, yeah, there was a there was a lot of stress that year. The team was pretty stressed about getting these designs out and making the schedule of I made a whole schedule for the year of what was actually possible to get made with like the three or four of us working like outrageous 80 hour weeks. And like, basically, there wasn't enough time to actually like make all the parts that needed to be made and was really kind of going back and forth with designers trying to be like, could you get this out faster? Could you get this out faster? And they needed the time too to integrate with this four-wheel drive system. So it was my first kind of learning opportunity from a leadership perspective. And I think I executed really well from like getting the parts done, following through on commitment, making schedules, things like that. But what I did not execute well on was kind of working with other people. And it was, um, yeah, I'd learned a lot about kind of stress management and how to keep level head as a leader and the importance of that and definitely made some leadership mistakes along the way that will have a big impact on my career. Uh, and yeah, I would highly recommend if anyone has the opportunity to get into a project like this, like this is in some ways, it's like, it's like free learning. You think about all the learning from the machining perspective, like breaking tools, crashing machines, like it's a lot easier to do that on someone else's, the school's dime than your, your dime. But it's also free learning in terms of kind of working with people and leadership. And so I was working with a team of like 20, 30 other people regularly on this team. And I made some leadership mistakes in terms of just working with other people that if my first experience doing that was when my company reaches 20 or 30 people that, and I kind of make mistakes that kind of ruin the culture of a machine shop, which I've seen in industry multiple times, then that would be like far more devastating than making these mistakes in this kind of team environment. So I can't really hi highly recommend that enough and kind of had some some big takeaways from that. That were, yeah, yeah that I mean, were really it, it cool. seems like it's a really safe space for students to make, you know, even big mistakes like that What's, and not have a really big repercussions. What's cool is it feels very high consequence when you're involved in it because you got this team, the RIT Baja team was pretty much competes with Michigan and uh, ETS, which is a French Canadian school, to be the like. Pretty much RIT and Michigan go back and forth winning the championship every year. They're two long-standing successful teams. And there's a lot of pressure to perform that you're kind of taking the reins from 20, 30 years of Baja where RIT has dominated. And you don't want to be the year that just totally screws up. And so there's a lot of tradition on the team, a lot of, um, a lot of pressure to perform. And yeah, so it feels very high consequence, which it, I think is an important aspect of kind of practicing and learning leadership and management because when you get into business it feels very high consequence too so that's nice versus just a i never felt like a school project or something like that felt very high consequence like you're like this is just fake work someone created for me to do to learn <laughs> but th this felt very real and i'm a very competitive person so really fit with me well and that's where i got a ton of experience really learning that stuff so rit is also a co-op program so when I, the first company I worked for was semiconductor automation company. So they were a machine shop. I think there were maybe 40 people in size, maybe if I had to guess, maybe 20 million in sales a year. So kind of a medium sized machine shop. Uh, and I worked for them for a summer in college. And yeah, that was a really cool experience. So first of all, I'm kind of on a scale from like kind of really disorganized and dingy to like absolutely beautiful facilities. This this place was was really beautiful. 
They had you know, beautiful epoxy floors. They had a guy cleaning the floors all the time. They had a large, massive clean room uh, for assembly and were, did a lot of electrical and mechanical assemblies and things like that as well. So this place was spotless, highly organized. Yeah, really like a showroom, kind of something you might see over in Germany and maybe not so common here in the U.S. It was cool that that was my first experience working in a pretty reg, not super regulated, but kind of super high, high standard industry. And these parts, because they, most of these semiconductor automation things, they make like arms that pick up, what are they called? Like wafers and move them in and out of ovens and cleaning and things like that. So all this equipment is used in a vacuum and a tiny scratch here and there can introduce like, like dust particles into that environment. And then I think these automation systems are part of like a billion dollar cell or something. So if they, if you like scratch a little part and then your tiny little part in this massive billion dollar facility gets contamination and they have to shut down that facility. So you can imagine what kind of costs are associated with that. So there are like very high standards for surface finish and, and quality. And there were even like, I remember working on some parts and like, oh, we can't measure these with calipers because the calipers could, could scratch the part. Uh, and a lot of parts that were just refinished for the purpose of of cleaning up surfaces for cosmetically, basically. So that was a cool experience. And when I was there, so they were onboarding a ton of new parts and they had a big uh, brown and sharp CMM with an articulating head and a scanning probe that ran a PCDMS, uh, which I think you're familiar with. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and they they had two pro, like CMM programmers there, but one of them was retiring in a month and the other one was super busy with other things. And Neither of them really were uh, actively like learning and improving their PCDMS abilities. They were just like had taken a class 10 years ago and this is what they knew how to do. The one guy who was pretty good at it, he didn't even own a computer. So like he would come over to the CMM during his lunch break to check his email and like read the news. And they had taken on all this work for these, these parts with a kind of a spline profile. I don't want to get too much into detail with them, but they needed a, a sketch scanning programs, basically. Do you have any, uh, did your, the PC, the uh, machines you worked on, did they have a scanning head at all or? One of them did. Yeah. So I, I know quite a bit about scanning. So yeah, they, it's pretty easy to do. It's just some menu clicks to get in there and make those scanning profiles. But they had decided as a company that this was too far too complicated for them to learn how to do. So they were outsourcing these CMM programs to, to Hexagon Metrology. And hexagon metrology was, you know, charging, I think, a bajillion dollars for each program. And then the worst part is when they got them, it would take them days and days of their employees' time to troubleshoot the program because it wouldn't, it would load like sideways on the machine or there was just some weird errors because uh, yeah, there's lots the, of different versions. The company I worked at had a very similar experience. They had, before I started there, they had a part contract programmed, I think, by hexagon. And it was the same thing. It was like it, you know, you would think that the company who makes the machines would have perfect programs that could just load and run. And it was not the case. Like it, they were constantly troubleshooting it and it took days and days for it to actually work. Yeah. So th this, this company had a big engineering team that was kind of upstairs in the office doing more engineering type work. And then they had the manufacturing on the floor, a big machine shop. And when they hired me, I was really more interested and they were more interested in me working in the manufacturing side. Um, so I was down on the shop floor. My desk, instead of 
upstairs was down on the shop floor so I could have access to Mastercam because they it was like stuck on that computer, the license. So it was pretty cool to be down on the shop floor and did some shadowing of the guy who ran the CMM and it showed me kind of the real basics, but then I was like, I can figure this out. So I kind of had free reign on it for a day and my manager came over and I was like, hey, do you want to watch the scanning program I made? Because I knew that they were struggling with that. And I just looked up on the PC Demos forum, like how to make a scanning program of a closed profile. And someone had written out like excellent step-by-step instructions. I just screenshotted it, printed it out. And he was like, they were pretty blown away. They're like, we can make scanning programs here. Like, because right now they were paying, you know, like thousands of dollars to these programs and then days and days of labor to get them working. And some kid on a college intern salary could make one of these in 20 minutes. (laughs) And they were like, oh, and this was a huge bottleneck. They had, I don't know, 20 machines in this shop and one CMM. And the CMM was a massive bottleneck because this new inspection requirements that were kind of being revamped by their new customers. So I was able to find kind of a niche there where I wasn't just doing intern work that I was like actually super helpful for the for the company. And that felt really good because I always like to feel like, I think everyone likes to feel like what they're doing is actually important and consequential. No one likes to do things. For, no one wants to dig a hole to fill it in or whatever like that. So right, exactly. That was a really cool experience. And then also did a tiny bit of programming for them as well for some some kind of simple parts, these like big plates with holes in them and things like that. Uh, but really found the niche working on that CMM programming and got really good at that. And again, just self-teaching myself that stuff. And yeah, I've kind of gone back there here and there throughout the years to help them out. So that's been a really cool, that was a really cool first experience. But I think the other thing I learned is like, even though the shop was was beautiful and had really good people, really good equipment that they, I was amazed at kind of how the slow pace of how slow everything is made in, in kind of out in the real world. And I was like, oh, if this was on the Baja team, I could make that in 20 minutes. Like, why does this take like <laughs> two months to make this part? I, I was definitely, yeah, maybe frustrated and kind of eager to be like, there, there's got to be a better way than this. And obviously there's always room for improvement, but also there's a lot of other things to account for there with their, their yeah, a lot of the quality stuff and processes that hold things up and, and scaling and scaling, having lots of setup people and one programmer, things like that. So that was a really cool first experience. And I think I'm super lucky to have basically only, I've worked in three different shops before I started my own. And that was the first and only worked in shops with really high end customers. I've never worked in like a more basic machine shop, which is kind of interesting. And so I went back to school after that and did another year on the Baja team. And then COVID hit. So I'm pretty young, if you can't tell by that timeline. So I'm 25 years old, started my company at, I think, 23. Uh, So yeah, started right after college. So we can talk about that in a minute. But yeah, so after COVID hit, it was during March break. We were on spring break. And then spring break got extended a little bit. And then we never ended up going back. And everyone just finished their courses online for a month or two till the school year ended. And as my courses were getting wrapped up, I started looking for another job and was just looking around. I think I found this job on Indeed. And it was a small turbo machinery machine shop in the New Hampshire area. And so it's a bit of a commute. It was an hour and a half each way. And so, but I was like, this is so cool. I got to go up there. I got the, got sent in my resume, got an interview. So I drove up there uh, and I uh, talked with the, 
with the owner. So this was a smaller company. I think it had maybe 10 employees. Most of those were operators for a production job they ran. And they had only had one programmer, engineer, and he had kind of walked out on them. Not walked out. He had given us two weeks notice and things. But when you're the only one that can even open Mastercam or SolidWorks and the whole company, like two weeks notice is not a lot of notice to basically the company was just like had to just halt everything because he was the only one that knew what was going on. And the owner was a very experienced kind of setup person, but he was not a programmer. So he wasn't able, he wasn't, yeah, he started it from a kind of interesting perspective. So he knew what the machine should do and he had a lot of good insight, but was not able to actually make them do those things. Like, so he, he would have a lot of critiques of programs and things, but he did not know how to use the software. But <laughs> it was, uh, ended up taking that job. And that, that was a really, I think, the most influential experience I've had that really kind of solidified I should start my, my own shop. So basically, when I, when I showed up there, I, I was the only one. I was basically the, the head, the lead program, lead engineer for this company while I was still in college because they had no one else that could, yeah, no one else that could really do anything. They had some, some office people, salespeople, things like that, setup people, but no one that could open Mastercam, no one that could use SolidWorks. I was interacting with customers, basically had taken over this experienced engineer's role uh, when I was 21 years old or something like that. So that was a really cool experience. So I think uh, we should talk about the turbo machinery industry a little bit. It's pretty interesting. So we mostly worked on uh, kind of your standard looking kind of impellers. And so those impellers are generally they're, they're turned from either just a, a lot of them are forgings just for the material properties. So we'd get in big aluminum or a lot of 17.4, 15.5 forgings and then turn them. And a lot of these parts were pretty big. The biggest part I worked on was a 700 pound piece of aluminum. Uh, oh. It was, I believe, 22, 24 inches in diameter. There's a picture of it on my Instagram and maybe 20 plus inches long. So I loaded that in with the forklift. They had, um, so they had all older Mori lathes, kind of pre-merger. And those things were awesome. So the two lathes, they had some production lathes in another unit. But the two lathes I spent my time on were an SL35, which I believe was late 1990s. And then the SL6, which is a big green machine. And it is from the 80s, maybe late 70s. It is old. It had, we loaded them with RS-232, but they also had, like, you could read tapes on the side of them. There was like a cassette on the side. So that's how old these things were. And it, it would take like a few minutes to load like lines of text through the RS-232. But boy, were these machines well built. Like that machine, if I could, if I were in the market for a two-axis lathe like that, especially a big one, if I could buy that machine new, like I would buy that over anything else that they sell right now. Like, it is so well built and the tolerances those things could hold when they were 40 years old was unbelievable. And they're, they're slow, but the work we're doing is borderline should be on a VTL. It was pretty big. And so it doesn't, it doesn't matter that they're slow because this is, this is a for, the forgings we were putting in there are often twenty thirty thousand $30,000. And like more than that is like an eight month lead time. So you scrap that forging, like you'll be like, oh, I'll go to your customer. Like, oh yeah, we'll we'll try again in eight months. Like, right, yeah. Uh, so there was definitely 
there was no rush to optimize tool changes or anything like that. Like every tool path would like go back to the home position and then you would check it and things like that. So that was a really cool experience. And I felt that the work I'd done on the Baja team with turning really carried over well and was able to really uh, create really efficient, high quality lathe programs for them. They had a, which I really appreciate, they had a night shift machinist who had a day job and then came over at night. And he was older guy, like past retirement age, but always talking about retirement, but couldn't retire. He worked incredibly slowly. Like, be like, oh, I got to go over that drawer over there. It's going to take me 10 minutes to walk over there. And, <laughs> and then I should chat about getting some coffee for a bit. But he, he was so careful and so experienced that you really, at first I was like, oh, don't we want someone like young and energetic that can get in here and just like hammer this out, hammer that out. And over time, I was realized like, no, like this is a really awesome person to work with because you could give him code that was, you could like sabotage the code to crash and like he wouldn't crash the machine. Like he, you would give him a lathe program, like thousands of lines. He would sit there, read every line, very meticulous. And he also knew like a lot of good strategies. And we kind of gained a great relationship and were kind of able to work together uh, to create these processes for these parts and really appreciated working with someone like that and learned a ton from him. And he still calls me now and again. He, he goes, I can't pay you, but I have this problem. Do you think you, think you could alter this for me? And I'm like, sure. And I shoot him an email with a little, with a little code edited or whatever. Uh, he goes, I'm just really in a bind. <laughs> so it's a really, really, really appreciated working with someone like that. And then on the milling side, so they had, this was my first introduction to Heidenhein. So they had a, um, an older Micron machine. I think it was a, either 2004 or 2007 machine. And it was a UPC 600 Vario. So it's a B-axis machine. Uh, and this was kind of their Micron. And it also had a huge tool changer. So it had a, a Siemens tool changer tacked on the back of it with a hundred, 120 tools, I believe. And then it had a side access pallet changer with, I believe, seven pallets. Um, and this, the tool changer was poorly integrated and the pallet changer was very old. It had a lot of problems. And this machine was just plagued with problems. Uh, and we had some aftermarket support. Uh, this guy who used to work for GF would come in and work on it because GF didn't really offer a lot of support for this machine. And Honestly, it was not the most impressive machine. I mean, we saw three plus thou of thermal growth in the spindle. Um, Whoa, that's a lot. It was really slow. So 23 second tool changes. Um, <laughs> you would like, you would press the tool change cycle and then you would like, I just couldn't watch it. It was too frustrating. Like I would press tool change and then I would have to like go do something else. So I tool change. I like just could not stand there. And then it had a pat, the pallet changes were, I think one, definitely over a minute, maybe closing in on two minute pallet changes. Uh, so this thing was slow and it just had aired out all the time, had constant plaguing problems with the tool changer uh, and the pallet changer as well. But it ran and I don't think they paid very much for it. And it was, when it could make parts, it was pretty impressive. Like once you really got that thing dialed in and learned how to use it, it was really cool. And it was my first experience with a true kind of the, the German five axis experience had HSK 63 and it had a Heinhein TNC 530, which is 
the previous generation to the the 640, which is common now, and then they're coming out with the TNC7 as well. So 530 and 640, really not that big a difference. Pretty similar controls, uh, pretty similar layout. So really just kind of, yeah, worked my way through the control. And every time like a service tech was there, I'd ask them a million questions like, how do you how do you do this? How do you do that? Like, and they're like, this is not really my area of expertise. So I was like, well, I just need to, <laughs> I just need to know. Like, and so I think uh, what a lot of people have talked about is Heinhein is an interesting. So unlike a Fanuc machine, you can just type in whatever you want and it'll just air out. And a Heinhein uses cycles and you can't just like type out the cycle. So if you want like cycle 100, you can't just, it's not easy, so easy to type out cycle 100. You have to know where cycle 100 is in this menu. And so sometimes you would know, oh, I want this cycle, but the there was so many menus to get to the cycle that you're like, I just want the cycle. I cannot find where it is though. And you know what it's called, you know what the icon is, but you just can't find it in all the soft keys. And so that was like a learning experience. Eventually I made a document just of all the cycles so I could copy and paste them in and things like there that. You go. <laughs> um and it was an interesting experience. So also we that company ran Mastercam, but then posted out a complete TruePath. Um, my first experience working with TruePath and working with those. This was pre-merger, so I was kind of emailing back and forth with those guys over in Canada, like like Ivan, getting some some issues worked out, getting the post the way I needed it. And then we also had a specialty software that. Have you heard of a Concepts Center EC? I haven't. No. Um, so they, they were actually at the they were at the Hermley event. They are uh, kind of a multifaceted company. So they're I think they're a design company. They're a machine shop, and then they're also a software company. And they are basically like a full package in the turbo machinery space. So they sell design software for turbo machinery, and they sell kind of design services and manufacturing services. And then they also sell their own CAM software. And this software is the best of the best for machining impellers. It's very expensive. Like if you want to make like a circle in the software, like it, it can't do that. It can't drill a hole. It can't. I eventually added something called ISO mill. I think it can now drill like a single hole or something. But <laughs> you, like this is very specialized software and the software is very expensive. I think well, over $100,000 for this. So were you package. using Camplete then to take stuff from Mastercam and stuff from their software and kind of merge it together into one posted code? That's correct. Yeah. So we didn't have a, a Heidenheim post for either their software or Mastercam. Everything, both softwares independently went through Camplete. And Camplete's kind of nice for merging softwares like that. Like you could make a toolpath from Fusion and then one toolpath from Mastercam and one toolpath from Concept Software and post them all together as a kind of unified block of, of code. So it was a really good fit there. And then the the way they edited the posts were really cool. So you would program only a single blade. Like if you had a 15 blade impeller, you, you would program one pocket and then one blade. And then we would pattern that around on the control 15 times. And that way we were, we had built in kind of post-processor that had that all built up. So you'd walk up to the control and you'd just type at the top of the program, how many blades does this have? 10 or whatever. And then the main would auto-generate exactly where to uh, how many times to go around and we also had all these other configurable macros like do we want to check if the tool's broken every blade do we want to check it every two blades do we want to move on to the next blade if it's broken or do we want to stop 
all kinds of things like that. So it was really cool to see this infrastructure they had built out for turbo machinery and was very involved with the lathe programming and then did a, a tiny bit of uh, impeller kind of blade programming, not a ton, but that a lot of kind of more standard five axis mill programming I did for them out of Mastercam. And so, so at that, was that GF the only five axis they had? Oh, so yeah, the other five axis they had was a Hermley C400. And that was my first experience. That was a good question. Okay, now 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 I'm seeing the connection now because I'm at this point I'm still like, so why did you buy a Hermla, you know, for your company? But okay, starting to see the connection. So technically, <laughs> they had two other five axes, which are uh, two identical machines, and they were Boston Digitals. Uh, you've never probably heard never of heard that of company. Them. No, <laughs> they, they're not they're not in business anymore, but. I would assume they were based out of Boston. I think they were at some point for a brief time, like the the creme de la creme of five axes for at least for turbo machinery for a brief time. And they were they were configured so they it looked like a three axis machine, and then it had a tilting the head tilted left the kind of left to right. I can't even remember what ac- axis that would be. It'd be that would be right. Yeah, it's a B axis. And then they had a fourth axis trunnion, which but upwards was upwards in Z, like a C uh, axis more went, or less on the table. So when I was there, they were configured, yeah, pointing up. But when they used to do impeller work, I believe they had put them on their side. So you could mount it like a fourth axis or you could mount it flat on the table. Um, interesting. Very interesting. And they were HSK 40 machines, but the spindles were having lots of problems. So there were HSK 40 machines that you could only run at like 7,000 RPM. So oh, they, and they, they ran a, com, they ran a uh, composites job for the aerospace industry. And basically this composites just destroyed these machines. One, they had this specialty coolant in it that ate away every gasket, every piece of paint. The coolant was a big problem, but it was the only coolant approved by this composites manufacturer. And then also, yeah, it just makes sludge, basically, the, these parts and these production runs of parts. So they had run that for many years, and the job was quite profitable for them, but basically had destroyed these already old machines in the process. Um, so what made you leave this company? Because it sounded like, you know, you were, you had all the things that make a job very nice, like autonomy and mastery and all of that. So... You said you worked in three shops. This was two of three. What made you leave this one and go to another one? So actually, so I worked there for a bit. I extended a few semesters and worked there for better part of a year before going back to finish my um, uh, my college education. And it was a tough call, but ultimately I want to be closer to Boston. And while this commute kind of worked from the North Shore where my parents lived, it was going to be even more outrageous to live in Boston and try and get there. Like already an hour and a half each way, three hours round trip commute. And I was working often 70 plus hours a week for them. Oh my goodness. Was, it was all encompassing and it was going to be impractical. And then also living in Massachusetts and working in New Hampshire is kind of like maybe the opposite way to what you'd want to do financially because the you can get paid more in mass and then the living expenses are cheaper in New Hampshire. So you kind of almost want the opposite. Uh, and there were just more opportunities closer to Boston. And I felt like I kind of learned what I needed to learn there. And it was, uh, yeah, it seemed like there were, 
there were better opportunities elsewhere. So when I graduated, I ended up working for a surgical tool manufacturer. And they were also kind of a similar size to the first company I worked for, 40 employees, 10 to 20 million in sales. Then they also had another facility over in Poland. And this company was the only company I worked for that was kind of really a mess. And it's the nature of the work is difficult uh, because the volumes are medium to low and the mix is really high. So you, you have enough parts that if you don't have a good process, you can really screw yourself. And if you do have a good process or, or rather, but the parts don't come around enough to really justify a good process. So it's kind of an awkward middle ground. And they had been around for 30 years and kind of had grown into CNC equipment starting from like their original like tool room, Bridgeport type machines and had kind of outgrown that and built up a big five axis and Swiss departments. And over time, so basically the real bread and butter of this business was hot, complicated Swiss parts, which was not the side of the business I was involved in. They had had a long-term engineer there who had really taught himself a spree and really had made this really efficient. And they were taking on some pretty outrageous Swiss parts on these Citizen M machines, which are the highest end Citizen 5-axis Swiss machines. Uh, and But their milling department had had high turnover. Like they had a new programmer in the mill department every year for the last like 20 years. And when I got there, there was already another experienced engineer uh, that had been there for a few months that was kind of filling that role in the mill department. So ended up what we were working on most of the time was a lot of bending fixtures. And the medical industry is pretty interesting because we did a lot of hooks and, and things like that, the type of things you'd see when you go to the dentist. And a lot of that is designing hydraulic bending systems, dies to make those profiles. And it's a lot of work that's kind of tangential to, to machining, which was my first experience. It's not just like putting a block of metal in a machine and making some complicated part. There's a lot of steps here, like, like welding and then honing the inside of these parts. And there's a lot of black magic that goes into a lot of these parts. So you have very complex parts with a lot of steps that have a good amount of volume, but don't come around very often and high turnover in their engineering department. So basically they had, I think, close to 4,000 active part numbers. And whoa, and that's a ton. Like, no good process for any of them. And there you would go to the operator and be like, oh, I think I know what that looks like. And you would like look through his notebook and find some like, like melted piece of paper that was like, oh, I see here that we set this up like this. And I think I can find the fixture. So Daphne was, I learned a lot about, if I want to get into this medical work myself, like how do I grow my business sustainably? So the, the work I do now will be still applicable if this part number is still active in 10 or 20 years. Because uh, that kind of definitely scared me a little bit. The problem was is that you can't just, as an engineer there, redo the process of these parts because each part is only around for a few weeks making it. And some of these processes, they're really complex parts. So it can take a huge amount of time to onboard a new process for one of these parts. And then by the time you do, it just sits there in a folder and it might be a year before the part comes back around. So it's really hard to implement new, new processes just by the nature of when the work came in. And so it was kind of a bit maybe bored with the work there was a cool experience but really wanted to focus on programming and honestly they just didn't have that much mill programming at the time 
And so decided to, and I really had it kind of in the back of my mind, like, do I want to start my own company? I was kind of antsy to do it. And so started looking for kind of industrial spaces on in my free time, go, go look around. And so it's really hard to find industrial space that's small and affordable, but also has a big overhead door. And most importantly, a lot of power. I looked at probably 20 spaces that I would have loved to rent, but did not have enough power coming into the building. You are preaching to the choir. Yeah, I know you understand. (laughs) um, And I had that company up in New Hampshire I worked for had just acquired some more space. And they actually, they didn't have, they had run out of power in their building. I think you spent six figures to bring in more power to that building. I'm just starting, I can't spend. I can't spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars bringing in power to a space. I have to find a space that's configured right for me. And also, I found some ones that were three, 4,000 square feet, and I was thinking about sharing them. And that gets complicated. I didn't really want to share it with another business and didn't want to pay for that on my own. So eventually, I found a space that was 1,250 square feet. It's the space I'm in now. I remember I called the guy up on Facebook Marketplace, and the first thing I asked him is, like, how much power do you have? And he goes, more than you'll ever need. And I'm like, I, I was like, I doubt that. And it turns out he is a commercial electrician who has been very successful. And he now is kind of side income, builds these industrial properties and rents out the space and in these contractor bays. And so, yeah, he put in for 1,250 square feet, there are, there's 200 amps of 480. Um, Whoa, that's great. Per unit. So if I take over the unit next to me, I get another 200 amps of 480. You, it's pretty hard in 1,250 square feet to use uh, 400 amps of, of, uh, of 240 or 200 amps of 480. That's more power per square foot than you could realistically use. I, can, I would struggle to fit another Hermley in the space I'm in, but I have enough power for it. So basically, that's kind of... So it's the perfect space. And at the same time of that, I had also thrown an application into another job just to think about kind of switching. So this was a really cool aerospace manufacturer that had been well-established and really cool opportunity. And I ended up getting that job and they sent over the offer and they sent over all this paperwork, like no moonlighting clause, non-compete for multiple years. And it was all fair. They they didn't want the, I'm sure they had had some bad experiences with people doing stuff like that in the past. And they, so they sent that all over and it was also going to be a bigger time commitment. The, The company, the surgical tool manufacturer was the only job I've ever had that was like a nine to five, 40 hours a week. And I was out of there. All the other jobs I had, I'd always tried to like really push to be there, especially the company in New Hampshire. They are 70 hours a week. Like it was my life working. And this job was the only job I've had that was like, oh, it's four o'clock time to walk out the door. Like, just like drop what you're doing. It was just the culture of the company. And so this other job I was thinking about taking was big time commitment and really great opportunity. And I basically had to decide, do I want to put this dream of starting my company on hold for a few years, gain some more experience at this cool company, or do I want to turn down that offer and, and start my own company? And thought about it for a few days and decided to, to start my own thing. I feel like now's the time to do it while you're young. So I was 23 years old. I, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have all this baggage that I'm going to acquire later in life. And I had met a lot of people along my manufacturing journey that had the, res- had the skills for sure, 
had the customer connections, had everything they needed to start their own shop and had the dream of starting their own shop, but they never were able to do it because they waited too long. And then it was too much financial risk because they had responsibility to other people. And at 23 years old, I don't have responsibility to anyone else. And also I can live super cheap. I live with some friends in a house and I can recover from this. If this weren't were to work out, then I can always just hop on tomorrow and get a nice high paying engineering job. Another <laughs> mate, like everyone's looking for a programmer with mechanical engineering degree. So right. it's well, I, so th- I, this might be a great time to ask Ethan's first question, which is talk about the process of buying your machine right out of school. How was there not drug money involved? So how did you get a loan with zero, you know, business credit or anything like that and get a Hermla C250 as your first machine? So this was kind of my business plan. One, I had saved up a lot of money. I had worked very hard throughout college to save save a lot of money to because I knew that my dream was to start my own company. And also, I was fortunate enough that I didn't have student loans and things like that, which definitely delay the process for me. So I was fortunate there. But so that was part of it. And then also, I wrote up a business plan to present to the uh, the leasing company. And I worked, I can get into why I chose Hermley in a bit, but Hermley had a, has a leasing company in, that they work with often. And they un, that leasing company understands the value of these machines and that they can recoup this asset and sell it for a good amount of money that they hold their value well. So they are a little maybe more risk or less risk adverse there. But also my kind of business plan, which I wrote, is that I was committed to keeping my full-time job once this machine got moved in because my full-time job could just cover all the expenses of the business just barely without me making a, a dime from the business. So yeah, just the the monthly payment on the machine, the monthly payment for rent that I could keep this thing afloat just barely by basic, even if the business didn't make any money. And I also had some good potential work lined up from customers and previous employers and things like that that were helping enable this. So that is what I'd, I, yeah, especially as your first machine would not recommend buying something that you're relying on work coming in to pay for. That sounds very stressful. And this was certainly a stressful purchase, a huge purchase, $300,000 plus all the other stuff you need for a business like this. Um, but I knew I could could just cover just cover the payments with my job. And the uh, medical industry is very stable. And I knew it wasn't, I wasn't, they had really hadn't seen no decrease in work in 2008, this company. And so I wasn't too worried about ever losing this job. I felt I could really kind of rely on it. Uh, as long as I needed to. So decided uh, that was kind of the the thought process there. And then so I started, I knew I wanted to start a machine shop, but I didn't know what that would look like exactly. And so I had looked at sharing a smaller space and buying a more reasonable first machine, like a, a used three axis or a, even a new like three or four axis. And in the end, I was like, I really want to do high-end work and I felt I had the skills to do it and so started to look into this kind of five-axis market and looked at a lot of machines and was pretty close to buying a Doosan DVF at four or 5,000. And I looked at the Akuma, the Akuma machine 
And ultimately, those machines are not that much cheaper, but I think you get a lot less bang for your bucks. In terms of the Doosan, I think there's definitely, I talked to a lot of owners of those machines and not very many of them are particularly happy with the machine. There are a lot of problems, a lot of accuracy problems uh, and reliability problems and and service and things like that. And then the Akuma is a really high quality machine. Akuma is a great brand, but their entry-level five-axis, the Geno series, is a three-axis with a five-axis trunnion like tacked on the table. The, right, yeah, the clearances are not great on it. The clearances are pretty bad. I know multiple owners of that machine who were not happy with the clearances. And while I'm sure it's a stable, reliable machine from a very reputable brand, it's an afterthought machine. Uh, they took a great three-axis and they tried to turn it into a five-axis. And the uh, Hermely is kind of built from the ground up to be a five-axis. And when you're looking at all the other costs you incur here, that basically somewhere between only ten dollars to $40,000 more than those two machines, you could buy the very entry-level package of the Hermley C250. And it seemed like a no-brainer that you were going to get more value. You're easily going to get that value and kind of quality and reliability out of that machine. So Hermley is an interesting brand. So I kind of view it, I kind of view it like if you look at the car market, so you got, you have a, on the Japanese side, you got like Toyota, super high quality car, very reliable, a very, very nice, but maybe a little bit behind the design curve, slow to implement things. It's a conservative, extremely reliable vehicle, but not like all the bells and whistles. And you look at like the German market and you got like a BMW or Mercedes, which is the nicest car you could buy, but they're going to have more problems. You're going to pay $1,000 to fix your windshield wiper. They have too many sensors, things like that. And they're always innovating, which has pros and cons to that. And Hermley is kind of weird because in some ways they they have the machine tool markets the same way. If you look at like the old Mori's or Akuma, you got conservative designs. And you look at DMG or GF, you got kind of the BMWs of the market. More problems, but higher performance. And Hermley's kind of somewhere in the middle. They're like a German company with with like Japanese mindset. They haven't changed their design in 30 years. You look at the their machine and virtually identical. They only make one machine in whatever it is, 10 sizes. Um, <laughs> right. They, yeah, so I'm they, sure that operating your C250 is like not too far from the C400 you ran at it, the impeller shop. It's identical. And the clearances on the C400 are really the same because once you clear the spindle box, once you get far enough from the table and why with the table over at 90, you just need the correct size riser. And then the spindle box clears the, the table no matter how big it is even if you had a C62 or whatever. So they all work the same and they all work for small parts, even with the big table, as long as you're not going past a negative 90. Once you start to tilt past that, then the big table is going to cause more problems. But really, they're the same. And you can get you can work with a really small parts, even on a big machine on a Hermley. And so I, it sounds kind of ridiculous. I'm kind of risk adverse, I guess you could say, because I bought a Three hundred thousand dollar five axis at twenty three years old, uh, with, without a ton <laughs> yeah, of plan. That risk adverse is the that's the not phrase, maybe but. not the right firm, but I think I'm maybe conservative in the chance that I was very nervous about buying something that wasn't right, and I wanted to I wanted to be the 
the type of company that when my customers came to me, they knew they could always rely on me to get the work done. And that I was the one that was going to solve problems, always follow through on my commitments. And I felt like I wanted a brand and a machine that could do that. And because of Hermley's kind of mix between their high-end German five-axis, but also really conservative kind of Japanese approach to machine tool building, you end up with a German five-axis that's maybe only slightly less performance than the newest, latest, and greatest from DMG. But you have the, it comes with like the reliability of like a two-axis Japanese lathe or something like that. So (laughs) uh, it is, from a machine perspective, really fits, I think, my personality in terms of just being a really solid choice. And it fits kind of my, my business model. And then also the other thing to consider here is that like Hermley is a pretty generic machine. It sounds like it's high end, but in some ways it's, it's like a very basic generic machine. It just happens to be the most high end, expensive, high quality generic machine you could possibly buy. So it's not like the Hermley is going to get you into some super niche industry the same way, like buying a, even a Swiss machine or a Willman or some crazy grinding machine or something like that would. The Hermley offers you the ability to do all types of, of work, kind of anything that can fit in a mill that size, you could probably do in a Hermley. And that is, at the time, kind of the business decision I took. I wanted, I wanted to be broad. I wanted everything to come in the door I wanted to be able to do. And now I have no regrets, but I've given some business advice to some other young people thinking about starting a business. And I said, you should think seriously about specializing, buying something super weird and finding your niche. I said, like, everyone is buying like a VF2. And I said, how do you think you're actually going to be better than the next guy with the VF2 and a passion for machining? And so that's kind of a kind of interesting business philosophy I've played with but been really happy with the machine. And I think there's just no competing at this price point. Is well, Let's get into some of the questions about it. Carolina mm-hmm. CNC man asked, how's the service and support? So that's, service and app support. So that's the other piece of the machine that's just absolutely incredible. That So I, I email Hermley with a question and they get back to me within minutes. Like one time I emailed them at like nine o'clock on a Friday night and like 10 o'clock on Friday night, they emailed me back and said, sorry, it took so long to get back to you. And I'm like, so it took so long to get back to you. I was like, I just got here from my day job. I've been trying to reach like Mazak for like two weeks on a problem with the machines down. Sometimes I write in the header of my question to Hermley. I'm like, unimportant question. Like, take your time. I like feel bad how quickly they get back to me. And there was like a small bug on my machine a few months ago with some cycle rounding issue. And they, they, next day, next morning, there was a tech out there for free to install a software update. And they treat me, so I'm basically like as small a Hermley customer as you can be. I'm a one-man shop with one machine who bought their very entry-level package to their cheapest, smallest machine. And they treat me as if I'm their most important customer. And that is so cool because I've worked in big shops that have dished out a lot of money for other brands and they don't get the treatment that I'm getting from Hermley as their smallest customer. So they really believe in the little guy and they are a great company to work with if you run some, if you work for some huge like billion dollar company, but they're an excellent company to work with even if you work for that, if you're a one-man shop, a small company. They really stand behind their product and they don't look twice, oh, is this a big customer? Is this an important customer? Every customer is extremely critical to them and they, they treat you as if 
if you had a bad experience, they would go out of business or something. So I have never really in any industry seen a level of service and support that Hermley's been able to offer. And this is definitely the most expensive thing I've ever bought in my life, but definitely more passionate about this brand and what they've been able to offer me as kind of a business partner than than anything else I've ever purchased. It's just been a flawless experience and could not recommend them enough. And along with just excellent communication, they, their support team is, they have a group of people here in Wisconsin that are just um, so intelligent. They really know their machines well. Because they only have effectively one machine, they it's not to like, oh, let me look up what that machine even looks like when you call them up. They're, they're all the same. So they every app apps engineer is an expert in these machines and they are willing to help you. I, I called them up because I was writing this extremely complicated rotation mac, macro program, program and they spent the good part of the day with me troubleshooting this program. And that's all free. That like, comes with the machine. They want to make sure their customers are happy and successful. And especially as a one-man, one-machine sh- brand, like if my machine goes down, then that reflects back on my reputation. And so to have a company like this that's willing to get out there the next day if there's a problem, to get on the phone with me and troubleshoot something, it helps me protect my reputation and build my brand. So I could not imagine have gone going with a different different machine. And they've done so much for me. I could not recommend them recommend them enough. That's awesome. Well, we've heard the great things. Both Chief Bub and Moonlight Precision wanted to know, uh, Alex specifically asked, what are three things you don't like about the C250? And do you have any plans to add automation? Okay, so those kind of questions go together. So the C250, we talked about as a as a standalone base machine, 300,000, it's pretty price competitive for the market it's in. When you tack on automation to a Hermley, Hermley quickly becomes a lot more expensive than a lot of the other brands. So I bought the base machine and they were very upfront with this when I bought it, is that I saved some money by not configuring it for automation. I don't have a what's like what they call a systems table. I don't have air to the table. I don't have a lot of the sheet metal prep needed for automation. And I want to be clear that like that was a decision I made to save money to get into this business. I didn't need to be spending an extra 50 plus thousand dollars on prep for that stuff when I was just getting started. But now it's just definitely coming back to bite me. Basically, it's going to be pretty cost prohibitive to retrofit this machine for automation. At a certain point, probably would be better off waiting until I need a second machine or just buying the same machine prep for automation and like selling this one or something. Like the amount of work that needs to be done to this machine to accept automation is probably not worth it. And so um, that's definitely one of the potential prob, maybe one of the downsides of the Hermley brand is that you're buying, you are buying into an expensive package, a package that works extremely well, but it's slower to scale. Like I probably closing in on six figures of accessories for this thing and tool holders and, and laying fixtures. And because I bought the nicest machine, I want the nicest tools. I want the nicest holders. I want the nicest fixtures and it adds up and. Yeah, if you had taken all the money I spent, you probably could fill a whole shop with with hosses just on what I spent on this one machine. So <laughs> that's that's a trade-off you have to make. And I have lots of parts that require a machine of this caliber. But I also, the other day, made a plus or minus 5,000 cube with a hole in it on the Hermley. And that, <laughs> that, that would be nice to have uh, a simpler machine for. But 
kind of finishing the tooling up process of this machine. I'm working on standardized tools and things. I placed a PL a couple of days ago for $20,000 worth of more RegoFix holders. Like I really want to do it right. And that's expensive. So that's one of the downsides of the machine. Also, it's 30 tools right now and you can buy an extended tool changer, but it, that's expensive as well. So 30 tools seems to work for most of my parts. I've had some parts that have gone over 30 tools and there's ways of handling that, either hand loading them or loading the first half and then the second half. But I would love more tools, but that's not really a brand specific thing. It's more just, um, it's always nice to have more tools. Uh, and then uh, the last thing is very nitpicky. And this is a Heidenheim problem I had. I was, I was, uh, I was telling the Heidenheim guys at the Hermley event. So first of all, what's really cool about these Heidenheim controls is you have on, on control simulation. I don't know how much you've messed with that, Don. Um, uh, not at all. I, I am completely green when it comes to Heidenheim. So basically, the tool table is a lot more filled out than what you might have on a Fanuc or a Brother machine. And a Fanuc, you, you're going to put the length in. Maybe you're going to put a radius comp in. But that's it. Like, there's no information about the tool. And here, it's kind of like filling out a whole form about the tool. I give it the tool name. I actually call tools by their name, which I'd highly recommend if you have a Heidenheim. It's a lot of advantages to that. Um, but also, you fill out the type of tool, the radius of the tool, the measurement parameters of the tool, all these things. So you have a well-defined tool. And then you can actually bring in, you can make a block for your stock in the simulation. And you can actually watch that stock be machined away. And it'll air out if there are any potential errors that you're going to hit. And you also get a quick glance as if something's really wrong here, like there's this one toolpath out in space that doesn't make sense. And so every program I've ever loaded on this machine, I quickly run it through the simulation. And the newer machines actually have, they actually show the trunnion and the spindle and the and everything. My machine is yeah, just- Kyle a, was showing me the DCM at the Hermla event. It was pretty cool. What should be very cool. My machine doesn't have that. It's just a block. And then like, so like if I put a quarter inch tool in a holder, then maybe the whole assembly is five or six inches long. So it shows a quarter inch, like it looks like a pencil because it's six inches long, like quarter inch tool is what I'm seeing on my screen. So you can't see crashes per se, like you will on the TNC7 or the upgraded 640, but you can see a lot of potential problems that could incur. And for proofing out macros, it's incredible uh, for stuff like that because it'll simulate all the macros correctly. It'll simulate engravings, things like that. And so, yeah, to place an engraving that you've hand-coded onto a part, I like do my best to figure out where it's supposed to go, how it's supposed to be rotated, and then I will just play the simulation. I'll be like, oh, no, uh, maybe I'll make it a little smaller. Maybe I'll move it to the left a little bit. And that's something that would be like a nightmare to, to proof out on a FANUC controller. At least you'd have to be a lot more careful. So that's, I guess, a positive. But the downside is when you have circular stock, this is very nitpicky, that it's called a block form, the actual block of stock you create. And it won't let, it'll let you do rectangles off center, but it won't let you do cylinders off center. And I was like, why can I not shift this cylinder? So it's like one inch off center because not my center of my workhorn system is not always on center with this cylinder. So I was talking with the Heidenheim and the Hermley guys. I was like, could you just add this? Seems like such an easy feature to add because I, if I have an off-center cylinder, I, I simulate it as a rectangle instead so I can get it to where it needs to be. So that's super nitpicky, Heidenheim feature. I don't know if that's three, but those are kind of the main things. <laughs> I'll take it. 
Moonlight Precision also asked, what is your favorite thing about the Hyde and Hein control? So the favorite thing, and this is a mix of Hyde and Hein and the Hermley overlay interface. So Hermley tacks on some of their own features that aren't standard on Hyde and Hein. And this is where you set up tools. So when I set up a tool, I name the tool and name. So I have a naming conventions. I'm working on standardized tools. So all the standardized tools are named STA, standard tool assembly, underscore, and then it might be the material. So like N for, or FR for ferrous or NR for non, or NF for non-ferrous and then half inch and then a bunch of other things. And then I call up all the tools in the program by name. So rather than tool call 57, I'll do a tool call standard tool assembly half inch rougher. And that one makes sure that the tool you're, you're pulling up is always kind of correct, but also it allows you to do sister tools very easily, redundant tools. If that one wears out, it just immediately finds the same name in the list, the next one down. So you don't have to even link them. If it had the same name, it goes to the one with the higher number and then it goes to the one with the lower number when it breaks or runs out of tool life. And also allows you to build out basically an endless list of tools. So I'm building out few hundred tool standard tool list assembly and being able to have that all organized within Heidenheim is super nice and the other nice thing is that when you put tools in this machine it knows the tool is new and it automatically measures them so i just plop 30 tools for a job into this machine and every time it pulls up a new tool i could press go and go home and it would run every time it brings up a new tool it automatically measures it because I have a checkbox checked in my tool table. And if it knows which tools are new and which tools are not new. And so there is no more calling up each tool and offsetting it. Uh, that's all automated. And then another checkbox is just tool breakage. So check the tool if the tool's broken before you put it away and stop if it is broken. And so there's no more building in macros and things into the program itself. I just check a tool bo- a box in the, uh, in the, tool table. And so that can save a ton of time. It is labor. It's a ton of data entry to get these tool tables to work the way you want. And so it's a pro and a con. You can waste a lot of time messing with a hide and hide tool table. That's just not steps you would need on a more fanic s control. But you can also save a ton of time if you have your ducks in a row and you really build it out the way you need to. That's super cool. Let's see. So you mentioned tool assemblies. Tux Garage asked, how do you pick your tooling for jobs? Do you get a general style tool holder or type or do you buy holders as the job requires? Okay, so this has been a big kind of thinking point for me for the last year as I transitioned from the way I started my company is that I I thought there would be maybe more, more production and less mix. And I found my company is more medium mix, medium volume, and a lot, some low volume as well, and trying to find the right system there. So my initial thought was, I'm going to buy the best tools for this part possible, and then I'm going to keep them in these organized U-line bins, the, the same process bins that I think John Saunders has been talking about a lot recently. I've been buying those for the last few years, and each part number that repeats it's going to get their own bin with a grid of this tool goes here, this tool, and I was going to set up all the tools for that job and then run it. And that has some pros and cons. One, the pro is that you get the best tools possible for every job you run. The con is that you acquire a lot of tools 
that just sit in a drawer for years that if I buy a half inch roughing end mill, that thing could last years, especially it could last decades if the part only comes up every few few months or whatever. So then I have acquired a hundred of them for a hundred different jobs. That is a lot of money sitting in drawers and a lot of labor to set them up, the same thing up. Am I going to put that one away and then immediately set up the exact same tool for the next job? So I found that I was kind of more in the production mindset when I started this job. And maybe that's not quite the reality of the work that's come in. And so I've decided after a lot of thinking to transition to standardized tooling. And with standardized tooling, you have to make compromises. You can't have the perfect tool for every feature because then your standardized tool list would be as long as all these catalog lists combined. You can't have 10,000 tools set up. So I have, because I do do repeating production work, I think I do have to have a more extensive standardized tool list than say a prototype shop because yeah, a prototype shop, if something takes five minutes longer because it's not the perfect size or whatever, doesn't really matter because all the time is in the programming. And I'm kind of a mix where I don't want to make too many compromises with the tools I choose or this having too small a selection because then I'm going to add up a lot of cycle time as well. So I've decided that if I'm going to do this, the standardized tools have to be the very best tools on the market and they have to be a wide enough selection for me to choose from as a programmer that I very rarely am going to be antsy for a different tool. Unless it's something special, I'm not going to have like every key, you know, key cutter or something set up. But so I started with drills and taps because that was the lowest barrier to entry because I pretty much drill and tap on every job is the same, same drill, same tap. There's no reason to have those job specific. So that was the first thing I transitioned. And because we do a lot of stainless, but also do a mix of aluminum and things, Decided to go kind of high end on the drills. So all my drills for drill tap assemblies are the Mitsubishi MVS drills. And those are just super reliable and they work in a ton of materials. They're Mitsubishi's kind of multi, multi material, multi purpose high performance drill rather than going just the stainless specific one or the aluminum specific one. And then I went for the OSG A brand taps. They're, they're cut taps. So I have spiral flute and, uh, yeah, spiral point tap for kind of through and and blind holes. And the reason I went that way is some of my customers that can't do form taps on a lot of parts for kind of foreign object debris, you can kind of smush uh, things, debris into that with a form tap. And also there's chances that parts of the tap can break off and sometimes they don't look as clean. So I don't do form taps except for the very smallest sizes. I, I just can't get consistent results out of like an M2 tap, which I seem to do a lot of holes of. And so that I went for a form tap. Uh, and so once I did that, I was like, wow, the savings here are, are big. There's, there's co- it's cool because there's cost savings, even though you're using the highest end tools all the time, because you're not having to buy a new one for every job. And there's also huge setup savings. I no longer dread a part with a tap tool because it's all, everything's already set up in my cam system to drill and tap that hole. I just have to click a few buttons and plop those tool holders in the machine. And because it's a Hermley, I don't even have to measure them. It automatically <laughs> knows I need to measure them. And so I'm right. like, okay, it's time to do this with all the other tools. And that's where the rabbit hole kind of begins. Because if you want the highest end tools, then you have to determine which ones those are. And so I've spent the last many months 
doing a lot of testing here and there of different brands and finding what works. And so in terms of solid carbide roughers, I found that Frasia has pretty much won every roughing battle I've attempted per se. And so the AXFPS roughers for aluminum are super cool. And the problem with, so like I use like a helical or YG1, like half inch rougher as an example, a lot before this. Uh, And the problem with those tools is that the Hermley, even though it's super powerful machine, actually like can't bring that tool to its max because I want to run that tool at 17,000 RPMs, just slightly less than the max 18,000 RPMs. And the torque band of the spindle is not there. And so I run out of machine before I run out of tool, even on a Hermley. And so that AXFPS roughers have done something really interesting. They've totally kind of reinvented the way those tools are used and they're run at much lower RPM. So like a 12 millimeter half inch tool is running closer to 10,000 RPMs with the Fraser tool. And you're right in the torque band of that spindle and the chip load is crazy. So the thing sounds like it's about to snap off. It's crazy loud, but they're very reliable and they can helix at crazy angles. And also they just their, their feeds and speeds recipes are super useful. So I don't have to kind of think about when it's not a full dynamic long flute length application, it's easy to find a good, a traditional ruffling strategy for those that work super well on shallower pockets. And I found I was wasting a lot of time on shallow pockets because I was lazy and would just do kind of a adaptive tool path that didn't really need to be adaptive or could have been a much bigger step over. Um, so those have worked super well. And then in terms of finishing tools for aluminum, I did some testing. Do kind of like the Frasia Multicut XA, which is their like five, five or seven flute aluminum finisher. But the problem with those is that they have a, well, the pro and con is they have a small corner radius, which is great for parts and tool life, but it sucks for making soft jaws because you're leaving a small corner radius in the corner of all your soft jaws. And then a lot of the parts don't have a chamfer large enough to account for that 0.2 millimeter corner radius. And I didn't want to maintain a separate library of finishing tools just for soft jaws. And that's where I struggle with those tools. So I ended up going with the OSG A brand metric finishers. They have kind of a rainbow coating on them. I forget what the coating is. And they're, they're just kind of a standard three flute with a pretty big core. And those have worked pretty well. And I buy them in five times D and three times D, both lengths. Um, so standardize on those for finishing. And so far, so good. I think for some applications, I will put those Fraser finishers in. But for general purpose stuff, the corner radius does kind of annoy me for cutting soft jaws. So that was the thought process there. And then on the steel side, mostly stainless. Uh, I do really like, again, the Fraser kind of one out there and went with the, what are, what are they called? The uh, SXHDC, which is that kind of a maybe orangish gold coating, high flute count, high dynamic tool. Those work super well. And also the MFC tools, which I think, Dylan, you've used a lot of. Yeah, those are bananas. Like ramping into stainless at the degrees that they ask for just feels wrong. So yeah, I recently used a 5.2 times D, so they're long MFC. And I ramped, this was an 8 millimeter, so pretty small tool. Ramped all the way in 5 times D, like whatever that thing was, like 7 degrees. And then just started roughing out this pocket at a full depth dynamic at few hundred inches a minute or something it is pretty pretty wild i 
I was kind of rushed to get these parts done. And I watched the first one run and it worked. And I had like 10 to make. And I was like, well, there's no way this will work for 10 parts. So I overnighted like another, like two of them. I was like, there's no way. It's, it made it through all the parts. I still have it set up. So those have been super cool. And then the shallower ones are super good because they, they do have some good settings for kind of plowing material, more traditional roughing styles when you don't want just a adaptive tool path for everything. So between those two tools for roughing have been super cool. And it's definitely a trade-off. They're, they're really expensive. <laughs> um, yeah, they are. But they work super well. And then in terms of finishers, the Fraser finishers are pretty cool, I found, but you really need full flute engagement. I, so I've gotten great success out of like the 5.2 times D, like super long E-cut finishers. Those have worked in applications where I'm like, you would think, oh, that tool will never be able to do that. But the shorter ones, the easy applications, the shallow pocket, because of that helix and its reliance, my theory is its reliance on like a lot of tool pressure to be successful, I've had trouble getting those working. And so they weren't quite as versatile as I was expecting. So I kind of used the longer length Frasia E-cut finishers. But for the shorter stuff, I'm going with the Mitsubishi VQ. And I still need to do a little testing there. I've had great success with three millimeter and under VQs, but I haven't used any bigger VQs. So that I just need to confirm is correct, but I'm 90% sure that's the direction I'm going to go. Up until now, I've been using mostly Gorilla Mill for stainless. And Gorilla Mill is, although their marketing is ridiculous, their, <laughs> their tools are fantastic. They are reasonably priced. And I think a big step up for the performance I've seen in stainless both for roughing and finishing that I've been able to get of like a helical end mill. So definitely would recommend checking out, uh, especially if you want to stay more in kind of like the inch land of things, checking out the Gorilla Mill stuff, had good success there. So yeah, building out these standard tool libraries has been a big rabbit hole. It's one of those things that like, I just need to now finish off and do. So I finally bought the last few holders I need to build out these assemblies because it's expensive. And I always get this clip on Instagram. It's a guy holding, it's like this, I think it's a clip from a movie. The guy's holding a glass of water. He's like, this water is not heavy, but if you like hold it all day, it'll be heavy. And that's kind of a, a problem with decision-making in business is that all these decisions are quick and easy, but if you let them plague your mind for too long, spend too much time making the, if you have the decision paralysis, then it's gonna eat up half your energy thinking about decision that you should have just made instantly. You know this decision is the right decision, but instead you spend weeks spending half your time like tiring yourself out on a decision that you should have just made. So that's like a big thing for me, just trying to be like, maybe this isn't the perfect route to go, but I need to get this done. I need to learn from it and I need to improve rather than try and hit perfection on my first attempt of something I'm implementing for my business. Yeah, it's really easy to get stuck in that loop for sure. Uh, Moonlight Precision quickly asked us, what's our take each Tennessee floor finish? And I think I probably know your answer based on your tooling recommendations. But it, uh, it's funny because it's something that I don't know if that's a longstanding name or it's just that video that guy put out, but it's something that's bothered me and it probably bothered everyone. That's why it's so funny for years that the the Tennessee floor finish and I know machinists that do it and it always bothered me and they go, oh, why, why would I finish the floor again? Or why would I make a new tool path? Uh, and so it's pretty, it is pretty funny. I, yeah, I definitely got a kick out of that video that someone posted recently. Yeah, Kyle put, put that up and I thought it was funny because yeah, it, it bugs me too. It was like, it just feels unfinished. 
It's like, man, if you're trying to make nice parts, just like make nice parts and don't. <laughs> I, I could see for a production job, if you worked with the customer for like the inside of a case of something that no one would see. Yeah. Or you're if trying it to... gets blasted or something, yeah. I could totally understand it. But like, I don't know. I send, for the most part, uncoded, untouched parts to my customers and I couldn't imagine sending them an adaptive on any kind of floor or face. But it was funny. I posted that part a day ago and they do had these swirl patterns that looked really cool that I had spent a long time trying different pocket strategies to make it look just right because I didn't like the tool marks on some of those softer stainlesses. And it, in some ways it did kind of look, it looked in person, they look really nice, but the picture does kind of look like a Tennessee floor finish. And someone was like, is that a Tennessee floor finish? But in my description, I was like, no Tennessee floor finishes in this shop. And then I looked at the picture again. I was like, maybe this does look like a Tennessee floor finish from this angle. Uh, we had two questions. DFM Toolworks and Moonlight Precision were both asking about your product brand. So DFM Toolworks asks, what is your hope for TAR? So yeah, so TAR equipment, I started with a long-term friend, kind of a lifelong friend. Uh, we went to middle school together uh, and we've both done a lot of kind of outdoors stuff. We're both kind of big skiers and stuff like that. So we were both looking for a product. So he works in, um, in healthcare consulting, kind of like the big pharma consulting. And I've had this business and he's been looking to yeah, trying to figure out what he wants to do kind of long-term for his career. And I've definitely thought about when I toured, especially these shops over in Germany and things, I've toured a lot of shops now. And it seems the ones that have their own product line are in general, like a lot of times more profitable, more stable, happier employees, because the service-based business is, is a tough business that, that I get my work from being the guy who responds the emails fastest and does the highest quality work. And sometimes also it's, it's price competitive. So this is a competitive industry, but when you have your own product, there's a lot of benefits there and it can complement a machine shop. Well, you look at a cool shop, like the fifth axis shop, they do a mix of contract manufacturing and they have their own like vice product line. That's a really healthy company. And so I wanted to experiment with starting my own, my own product line. And this was an idea that my business partner Griffin came up with. He uh, whitewater rafted the Grand Canyon and thought of this idea while rafting the canyon. And, uh, and that's a big multi-week trip and came back and we made a cardboard mock-up and then I made the first one on a Hermley. We got it working. We had to make some tweaks and decided to bring it to market because this is a low barrier to entry. It's a simple product. It's not going to, I've had some other ideas, but it would take huge amounts of my time and financial resources to dedicate to that. And this was a good way to get a lot of the learning out and see see if I like that doing that type of work. And also, what are the struggles with bringing a product to market? Because the grass always does look greener on the other side. And it's been surprisingly successful. There's been more reception than we expected. And the volumes are increasing, yeah, to a surprising degree, I would say. <laughs> and we've gotten some advice. We ended up, so we ran a meta ads on our own for a bit. Meta kept banning us because our, their AI systems are, yeah, try and find fraud and our business wasn't verified and we weren't getting great results. Like the dollar you put in did not generate that many dollars out. And so we ended up hiring a, an ad manager, buddy from mine from college who had started his own company. And that has been extremely successful. That is the best decision we ever made because he really got our ads lined up and it was yeah the return on ad spend is pretty incredible so right now we're stock limited but we're about to get in 
a lot more stock. And then we are going to to ramp up those ads and see how how well this scales. But I don't think I ever really quite knew. I always knew that like a business like Facebook makes money from ads. Everyone knows that. But until you own a business like this, you don't quite realize how much money a business like Meta actually makes. Like they like they will potentially make more money from this business than we ever will. And they just <laughs> all they do is like is show our pictures to people. It costs right. them nothing. And we had dish out a yeah, you dish out a ridiculous amount of money every day for them to do that. But it's profitable and it enables a business like this because it'd be really hard to get a product off the ground without that. And right. every dollar you put in basically instantly works out to be multiple dollars in sales. And then so it's super scalable because you immediately get that cash back. So we outsource this product completely. It's all US manufacturer manufacturing based, but I don't have a laser cutter. I don't have a lot of interest in owning a laser cutter or a, or a powder coating setup, which is what the ring is. And then the sewing is is kind of a lot of labor as well that I'm not particularly interested at the moment doing. So we've outsourced that to an industrial sew house. And if anyone listening that describes you, feel free to reach out if you're interested in this project. Uh, we're always looking for new vendors and things like that. And then right now we fulfill ourselves, but we're looking into if it's worth going to a fulfillment provider as well to totally kind of outsource this business. And it's a very different company than the company I run. And a lot of these Instagram community people that, you know, that I've talked to that really keep everything in house and run a really lean company where they manufacture these products. This is a little bit different. We're kind of outsourcing all the manufacturing, maybe outsourcing the logistics. So it's a kind of a different approach. But we've seen some of the benefits and also the pitfalls of doing that and learning a lot along the way. So I'm excited for what this product will do, but also what other products I might bring to market could do in the future to complement the contract manufacturing. Totally. Yeah. So what do you think like are the top one or two things that you've learned or that you would want to share to somebody who's pr- prospectively going into a product-based market? Um, hmm. So the big one is that there's a, there's a lot of benefit from organic growth, which we have not done a lot of yet. But I think a lot, probably a lot of your other guests or people in this community could speak to a lot better. Uh, but there's also uh, definitely a play where you can kind of pay for ads and turn that into, into basically turn that into sales. So figuring out and learning how the meta algorithms work or hiring someone that can help you with that process is super valuable. The guy we hired has actually done some work for machine shops and to have run ads, bigger machine shops. And I was asking about that. I said, is this worth it for my business, my contract? And he said he's had maybe, they get a lot of hits on the ads, like people contact them from RFQs, but the quality of customer that comes in from the ads they run is generally very poor. Um, it's a lot of people, the kind of customers that, you would not want uh, onesies, twosies, inventor types that don't really know what they need, people that don't want to spend a lot of money or have burned bridges at other manufacturers. So he hasn't, I thought it was interesting to talk to him about that. But when you have a product, especially a consumer product like this, that's the big thing is kind of learning how that works and trying different things because we've seen wildly different results based on the type of advertisement we run or the demographic we run to. I mean, 10x the returns on one type of ad versus another, which is can be a big difference in the in how the business scales. 
That's crazy. Let's see. So going back to your school days, Nathan King says that you taught him everything he knows about CNC on your Baja team. And he had some questions. He said, what's the most frustration he ever caused you? Okay, so yeah, Nathan's an awesome guy. He's the one that really kind of took over when I graduated my position. And he came in, he has a proto track in his his barn, I think at his parents' house and stuff, and came in really eager to get into manufacturing and super cool to work with him over the two or three years I was in college with him. We overlapped. And yeah, so I think teaching people machining, you quickly realize who's going to succeed and who's going to fail. And I think... I've taught a lot of smart people how to machine and the difference between the people that succeed and don't is how thick your skin is and how kind of big your sense of humor is. So uh, I think a good example here is I I got this bar puller working on the the lathe in school when I was in college and sat in the drawer for years and so excited. I wrote this whole macro for it and it pulls out the bar in this two axis lathe and I'm like, oh, it works. And I go grab a friend. I'm like, hey, watch this. And I hit the go button again. The bar has not been machined away again. So this bar puller rapids into the bar and, oh, br- no. and smashes into a million bits. And I, this is, this is me, not Nathan. And I, I just kind of burst into laughter. And I think someone turned to me and said, I think you're a good machinist because you're the only one I know that just laughs when they crash the machine. That makes me sound kind of reckless. I don't crash machines very often, but it is, you have to have a sense of humor. You have to watch something go wrong and then immediately just be like, oh, well, here's the next logical step. You can't let these things get to you. And a mistake in machining can easily be a few high, like a few hundred dollar tool, $600 holder, a $10,000 spindle. It only takes one tiny mistake and like, boom, money gone. And if you let all those emotions get to you all the time, it, it doesn't work. So the people I've seen most successful in machining have had thick skin. And uh, Nathan's definitely one of those people that really is gonna stick it out and, and get the work done. So that's super cool. I think... Uh, I don't know if there's been any frustrating moments. I remember one time it was like 3 a.m. We were in the shop and the machine, we had made an override. I'm going to get them in trouble probably. But there was an override key for the door because it's a really poorly integrated door and it's hard to jog the machine without it. And so he had the override key in and his hand like on the part in the vise and hits the cycle start button and the the spindle smashes down right next to his hand. And like, this is like 3 a.m. in a school. I'm like, Okay, well, maybe maybe no more override key today. Like, I think maybe you should go home and get some sleep. <laughs> oh, man, that's terrifying. Another question from him was, if you could change one thing looking back on college, what would it be? So I think I touched on it a little bit, but I definitely struggled with leadership at that in a role in college and definitely like walked away with maybe um, a worse relationship with some of the other people I worked with because it was stressful and uh, didn't always keep my cool and I, I wouldn't change anything because what an incredible learning opportunity that would be. But in terms of like, do I wish I had a different relationship with some of the people I worked with? Or do I wish I was able to execute uh, leadership better during that time? Absolutely. But also what an incredible learning opportunity. I'd never regret taking that position because all I've learned and all I can apply that to in my future to be a better business owner and leader. So probably have some like moment by moment regrets, but the overall learning experience and the learning the hard way, I think with all the things I've done in in machining has been well worth it in the end. Awesome. Last listener question, Murph's Machine asked, what's your favorite and least favorite parts you've made? So my favorite part was at that company, the Turbo Machinery Company in 
in New Hampshire. And it was my first ever aerospace part, which I thought was super cool. It was a small, they called a stator. A stator is like kind of like an impeller, but it doesn't spin. It stays stationary. And it's a 2D blades. They're not five axis blades. And so this was a part is Inconel 718, had a lot of intricate tight tolerance turning. This part is about inch and a half, two inches in diameter, something like that. And then some milled work for these super thin blades that thinned out to like five thou on the ends. And uh, there was some troubleshooting there with getting those blades to prevent them from curving over when the end mill rounded the corner and had to go to much smaller tooling. But uh, the part itself came out really nicely. I don't think there's anything in particular about it that's super interesting, but I think what it represented for me at the time made it the most exciting part that I felt like I was like, I felt like it was a big deal to be involved in this aerospace part. It felt very consequential at the time. And I think it's probably in a rocket somewhere, which is super cool. I think it was a United Launch Alliance part. So that, uh, yeah, that probably had the biggest maybe impact on me. And I spent a lot of time thinking about the process for making that part and how I want to make it. And there was some decision making there with just how I was going to process the part that was really cool. And I think it was kind of a milestone in my early career. So that's probably my favorite part. What about least favorite? Least favorite? I I don't know. I, I don't think there are any least favorites. There's definitely parts that are are no have been no fun. But I think it's also you got to look at them from a perspective of like, this part sucks to make. Like, how do I make this suck to make less in the future? And most of the parts that aren't fun to make, it's because they uh, are just like really uh, unstable, really thin, or a feature that just is like going to cause you problems. Like parts that are going to, you really struggle to ever have a reliable process with. You're always just going to skim by getting it to work this way or another way. And so I don't know if there's any part in particular, but I try and look at it from the perspective of, yeah, like, why do I hate making this part? Like, how do I make this part more enjoyable? How do I learn something from this? So that's my cop-out answer, I guess. Okay. Well, that brings me to the last two questions I ask every guest every week. First of which is, what did you research this week? It doesn't have to be machining related. It's just been what's been popping up in your browser. Okay. So I wrote a couple things down. Uh, Let's see here. So research. So the first thing we talked about is kind of the the standardized tools, been trying to figure figure that out and finish up that process. But also, so I right now I use Mastercam and I post on a Camplete TruePath. Camplete's since the Autodesk acquisition has become, yeah, there's been less support and it's getting more expensive every year. And it's also clunky. It's never fun to to arbitrarily add an extra piece of software in between you and the machine. And so especially for proof outs, when you need to change one toolpath, it's a lot of button clicks that make it not a streamlined process. And while it posts really good code and I have it dialed in, I want to move away from that. So part of the reason I went to the um, the Hermley event where we met a few weeks ago was because I wanted to talk with uh, the applications engineer, specifically Kyle, who's really been working closely with Mastercam to dial in a post-processor um, to get it posting directly out of Mastercam. And so I, for the for the hind post every toolpath separately. It's its own .h file. And then I have a big main. And it makes editing and rearranging programs really efficient. And that's something Camplete does well, but the Mastercam post does not. So I also was able to have some cool conversations with people 
from Mastercam about building some custom C hooks, which is like some custom like code automation to generate a main and solve some other technical Mastercam problems to make the workflow exactly how I want. So that was really productive. And if anyone does have C hook or NetHook development experience for Mastercam, definitely reach out. I'm still looking for someone to kind of implement what I'm looking for. So definitely let me know if you have any experience with that or recommend anyone. So that's what I've been researching on the business side. And on the personal side, I've been getting kind of more into skiing and running. I posted about that kind of earlier today or yesterday. And yeah, trying to, uh, to stay in shape. And the, the people I do these adventures with are uh, my good friend who I started the tar business with and then my girlfriend. And they were both college runners and are in really good shape. And so trying not to get left in the dust too much. And so uh, I've been doing some research. I recently or finished up reading this book called Uphill Athlete and trying to apply some kind of science and logic to my running to, to get more efficient at that uh, and train more effectively and hopefully catch up with those guys this ski season. Awesome. Well, the last question is, what things are you working on to be a better person, leader, employer, what have you? None of us are perfect. We're all working on stuff. What are you working on? Yeah, so I am two plus years into this business now. And I was, yeah, when I was kind of doing this moonlighting on the side, I was working part-time for the employer and then part-time, well, full, more than full-time in my business. And it was a lot of time. So I would get to my previous employer at like six, seven in the morning. And I would, I would stay till lunchtime. And then I would head off to my own business and often work until the middle of the night. And then I, because it was hard to find shop space, I got an hour commute each way from my shop. So there was no time for life, barely enough time for sleep. And uh, after doing that for a while, I had kind of my first spell of machinist burnout, which was five, six years into getting into this seriously and more committed than I'd ever been because I was a year into opening a company with huge responsibilities. And I needed to take a step back and say, how am I going to make this sustainable? Because I definitely have like an obsessive personality in the sense that like I get really into things and then I lose interest. And I'm like, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. So how do I find staying power in this? And we've talked a lot. People talk a lot about getting their like ducks in a row in terms of their systems at work. But before you can get your ducks in a row with your work systems, you have to get your ducks in a row with your life systems. And I took a step back and really kind of all last year really looked at how am I going to be more efficient and uh, live a more sustainable life. So started doing some things, started, you know, dating and found uh, a really awesome person. We've been dating for a year and uh, also just got more in shape, but also found some things. So like a big thing I do is I get these meals delivered every Sunday from a company called Nutra. It's a meal delivery service and it's expensive. It's a big expense uh, for kind of my business. Every week it's like 200 bucks. That's like $10,000 a year I spend in these meals. But there is a better ROI on that than like anything else I probably spend money on. And it sounds ridiculous to spend that much, but when your time starts to become valuable and I'm the kind of person that forgets to eat and then it's 4 p.m. and I'm hungry and I'm unproductive and I drive to Chipotle and then I've wasted two hours and that I can just pull these healthy meals out of the fridge and 
just feel like if I could have any superpower, I always said, I, I just want to feel like well-fed and like 100% all the time. And like, this is like a step towards that. So that has been like one of the biggest things I've implemented that has really massively increased my productivity and my general health. And it's, it's not like a diet. I'm not trying to lose weight or gain weight. I'm just trying to stay, uh, yeah, stay healthy and stay focused on what I'm doing. So making changes like that to your life and finding how this is going to be a sustainable journey has been kind of a big process for me this year. And definitely, I think someone, something everyone goes through when they go through this business journey. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Sometimes as a business owner, you have to do things that logically hurt, like they, you know, like buying a meal service or something. But big picture, they just save you time and, and save you the headache. So totally appreciate that. And I can definitely empathize with the, the rest of the obsessiveness yeah. and then burnout because I every, feel like even every year I go through like ups and downs where I'm like, oh, I can feel I'm kind of going into like a, a low period where I'm like not going to feel productive. And then I like come out of it. And I'm like, all right, cool. Let's get all this work done. Every once in a while, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I take a week off and it's like the most unproductive week I have. I'm, I'm like, I get nothing done. I'm hungry. I'm like, I'm like, no, like this is, this is so worth it. And it's not everyone is in a financial position in their business to do something like that. But if you're like a business owner or someone who's really struggling to find the time and your time's becoming valuable, I could not recommend looking into something like that enough. And feeling like you're in your prime all the time and uh, is is so valuable to you know, keeping a level head and running an efficient business. So yeah, lots of changes like that in my personal life, getting those ducks in a row have really helped me. And now I can really turn and finishing off getting my kind of businesses ducks in a row. Uh, with these standardized tools and things before uh, I get my ISO medical cert, the ISO 1345, I'm pretty close to going through the certification and then bringing on some new customers. But first, I really want to get my systems in order so I can, I can onboard that new work in an efficient way. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And thanks to new Patreon members. Looks like Jason, Will... Haytham, uh, Juan, Joe, and Elliot. Thank you all for joining. Let's me send mics out so that you guys have good audio. Thank you all for listening, and I will be back next week.